0: Good to have you um, back, and to see some new faces. Um, we are, love to have you as part of our Bible study uh, journey. Uh, this semester, we're going to be studying part two of Trusted Words: the personal letters of Paul. Um, last semester, as you know, we studied 1 Timothy and Philemon. We were introduced to the Apostle Paul as well to the recipients of those two letters, Timothy who we learned uh, Paul considered him a child in the faith and whom Paul had sent to Ephesus in order to confront the false teaching uh, there that was influencing the church uh, in that place. And Philemon, who was also a fellow believer, who came to faith under the teaching of Paul and to whom Paul made an appeal on behalf of another fellow believer, Onesimus. Now Onesimus, had, he was a runaway slave, turned humble servant who desire to return to the master from whom he had fled. So this semester, we're going to be looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy, who was still in Ephesus doing the work Paul sent him there to do, and then Titus, who was another young protege of Paul's, whom he had left on the island of Crete to put the church there in order. If you recall from last semester, Timothy was Jewish. His mother was Jewish, though his father was a Greek, so he was considered Jewish. Uh, Titus was a Greek um, who was also mentored by Paul and became his fellow worker, just as Timothy was. And we'll learn more about him when we're um, diving into the book of Titus. So before we get um, into the study, um, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to have the privilege of coming and studying your word together. We know that you gave us these words, these trusted words, and we know that they give us life, that through them we can find life in you. So I pray that as we dive into the study of your word this semester, Lord, that you would prepare us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to accept the words that you have given, words that can transform us from the inside out. We look to you, the author of this book. I pray that you would give me calmness of heart and clarity in my words, that they would be your words, that the message that you have intended for each of us will come through. I ask all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so first we're going to do a history lesson. If any of you know me, you know I I tend to go towards the history. Um, We're going to start with Israel. Think about the nation of Israel. They were under Roman occupation, right, as we know. Now, that Roman occupation actually began way back in 63 B.C. So that's a long time before the birth of Christ, right? So uh, at its height in 117 AD, so that's a span of 180 years, the Roman Empire covered 1.9 million square miles. If you were to look at a map of the ancient Roman Empire, you would see that it completely encircled the Mediterranean Sea. That was a large area of Roman occupation. So now we're going to do a timeline. We're going to do a timeline. We're going to start with Jesus, right? Because he's always our center. And keep in mind that all the dates are approximate because, you know, it's a long time ago, history, scholars, and all that. So, approximate dates. So, Jesus, scholars believe, was born about 4 BC. His ministry began in 27 AD. His crucifixion occurred in 30 AD. Pentecost occurred on the 50th day after the crucifixion, and the stoning of Stephen took place in 33 A.D. So you think about how we know about the stoning of Stephen, right, um, in the book of Acts, and um, that was really when Christianity took off. Now let's insert Paul's timeline. So for reference, Paul is known by two names in Scripture. There was Saul, which was his Hebrew name, and he has that because he is Jewish, He was born to devout Jewish parents, and Paul is his Roman name. And that was because his father owned land within the Roman Empire, and if you owned land in the Roman Empire, then you and your children born to you were granted Roman citizenship. So Paul was Jewish, and he also had Roman citizenship. So Saul of Tarsus is how he was known and how he is introduced to us in the scriptures. Saul of Tarsus was born about 5 A.D., So that's about nine years after the birth of Christ. He was born in Tarsus, which was a prominent city uh, within the Roman Empire. It's still a city today known as Tarsus in modern day Turkey. And in the year 20 AD, at about the age 14, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, who was a prominent rabbi in Jerusalem. Because remember, his parents were devout Jews. So that was in about 20 AD. 26 AD, Pilate, we know that name, right? Pilate began serving as a procurator of Judea. In 27 AD is when Jesus started his earthly ministry. 28 AD, John the Baptist was beheaded. 30 AD was the crucifixion of Jesus. And Paul is about 25 years old. At the time of Christ's earthly ministry and crucifixion, Paul had been studying the law and the prophets and was working towards a place of prominence within the ruling Jewish council. He would have been well aware of Jesus and his claims to be the Messiah, which is the reason why the Pharisees sought so hard to have him killed. And then Pentecost, 50 days after, when Christianity really took off, we read that story in Acts 2. In 31 AD, Saul is appointed a Pharisee, and he was eventually named to the Sanhedrin Council, and that was an elite group of ruling elders in Judaism that consisted of both Pharisees and Sadducees. Now Saul, he was zealous in the traditions of Judaism, right? In Galatians 1.14, he told us that he was advancing well beyond others his age. He was, he was really working hard in that role as a Pharisee. And as part of the Sanhedrin council, Saul was well aware of what was happening in Jerusalem after Pentecost had started as people were converting from Judaism and turning to follow this new booming sect of Christ's followers. And this angered him He well knew the history of the Jewish people and how whenever they turned away from following after Yahweh, the nation suffered judgment. So the whole Old Testament had proved that over and over. So Saul was zealous for keeping the Jewish religion pure and following the law of Moses that was given by God. So in 33 AD, when Stephen had been stoned, Saul began persecuting believers. So we learned last semester that Saul, or Paul, believed that he was doing the right thing. These heretics, as they were viewed, needed to be stopped. So Saul set out to do just that, right? He got letters from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and he set out on his way to Damascus. It was a Syrian city that was en route to his own hometown of Tarsus. So he well knew the way, and he set out to find those followers of the way, as they were known, to stop this new sect of religion. However, God had another plan in mind. And Jesus himself stopped Saul in his tracks on that road to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus himself appeared on that road in order to reveal himself to this man whom God had chosen to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus, the very one whom Saul had taken part of as part of that ruling Jewish leaders in Jesus's condemnation and death. He was indeed persecuting Jesus. So Saul's conversion took place in about 34 A.D., On the road to Damascus, we read about that in Acts chapter 9. And Saul immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. People just didn't know what to think. Some were amazed, some were confused, and some were very angry. The Jews began plotting to kill him. Imagine what the Pharisees thought of this man who'd been one of their top members. He's now joined the enemy. He's joined this uh, sect of Christ's followers, and they are livid about this. So that's the beginning of Saul or Paul's ministry. And to clarify, Saul began using the name Paul when he started his ministry to the Gentiles. So now let's think about what was happening in that culture at that time. First, you have the Jews. These were the followers of the Torah, the law of Moses, and they are intent on keeping the traditions of their forefathers intact. They were a very religious group of people on the outside. And then you have this growing sect of Christ followers. As God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which we read all through the whole book of Acts, he is opening the eyes of the spiritually blind to the truth of who Christ is. He is indeed the promised Messiah, the men who were the disciples of Christ became apostles who labored to spread the good news about Jesus in obedience to what Christ had commissioned them to do, which was to make more disciples. In Matthew 28. Now remember, Israel was under Roman occupation. Many non-Jewish people had moved into the area, so there was also a diffuse culture of paganism. Many gods and goddesses were worshipped. I actually googled ancient Roman gods and found a list of 20 named gods that they worshipped at that time. So the Roman Empire was primarily a polytheistic many-gods, polytheistic civilization. So we have Paul, a devout Jew who converted to Christianity, now proclaiming Jesus throughout the known world. And the Jews are still out to get him. They're angry that he's jumped ship. And the pagan culture, which as we know, is the work of the devil himself, is a strong influence that tries to push back against the truth of the gospel. We learned last semester about the Sophists. If you remember, that, it's a culture of people at that time that loved words and myths and genealogies. Greek philosophy also had a huge impact of the culture on the culture at that time. Socrates, which is a familiar name to most of us, he was born in 469 BC. So, well before the birth of Christ, that was all well established. And Judaism is, by its very nature, an ongoing conversation. There's endless commentaries on every sentence of the Torah. The commentaries have commentaries, I read in one book. This is a culture that loved words. So 34 AD, we have Paul's conversion. And for the next 20 years, again, estimated dates, Paul went on three missionary journeys. At the end of that 20 years, 54 AD, Nero became emperor at age 17. Well, that's a name you you recognize from history. So those missionary journeys, three of them, during the third one, Paul actually sent Timothy back to Ephesus as he was going on to Macedonia. We read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He was to instruct the church on how to behave as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And Paul went on to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Paul was teaching in the temple. Now remember, his teachings were very contrary to what Judaism upheld, and this caused a huge riot and attracted the attention of the Romans. The Jews wanted Paul killed, but the Romans arrested him. You know, he's causing all this riot to go on, but it was through that arrest that Paul was actually protected from the Jews. We read about that in Acts 21. So from 57 to 59 AD, Paul is in Jerusalem and he's under arrest, and he's addressing the Jewish people. He's addressing the Jewish council who just are not impressed with his message at all. He um, appeared before Governor Felix, and then Governor Festus, and then King Agrippa, all Roman uh, representatives. And he finally appealed to Caesar. Now, in Acts 23, we find out that the Lord had actually appeared to Paul in a dream and had told him that he was going to have to represent him in Rome. So Paul had appealed to Caesar. So in 60 AD, off to Rome he goes. He's in a voyage, which is precarious in and of itself, and he is in Roman imprisonment uh, under house arrest for the next two years. And he wrote many of his Roman, or his, uh, prison epistles during that time. In 62 AD, he was released from prison and did further work there in the city of Rome, and that is when he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus which we will be studying this semester. So that was about 60 AD. So Paul is in Rome. He's working hard. 64 AD, the great fire of Rome. Maybe you've heard about this before. Ancient historians have written accounts of this fire that burned in that city for a total of nine days. It is actually believed by many that Nero himself, who had wanted to build a new palace, And maybe do some renovations in the city, um, that he wanted to do this, and the council or the Senate actually said no, because it would be too costly. So many believe that Nero himself hired men to start the fire. He was outside of the city when it started. 71% of the city was burned, so he will get to rebuild the city. And Nero, of course, needed to put the blame on someone else, and he put it on the already despised Christians. And this was the beginning of intense persecution for Christians within the Roman Empire. So 67 AD, after that fire, Paul was arrested again, and this time he's imprisoned in a dungeon rather than under house arrest. And this is when he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. It's been about five years since he wrote the first letter to Timothy. Timothy is still in Ephesus, and Paul is most likely sensing that the time of his departure from this earth is at hand. He has last words that he wants to convey to Timothy, and he wants to see him again. He's emphasizing the importance of truth and guarding the good deposit. So he writes this letter. In 68 AD, Paul is martyred under Nero. So that's a history, in fast-forward history uh, of that time. But as we think about the three groups of people in this ancient era, we have the Jews, the Christians, and the Romans, and the cultural context in which they were living, we can see a bit more about what Paul was intending to communicate to his readers, especially during the time when these two letters, 2 Timothy and Titus, were written there was much angst in the ancient world toward, towards Christians. After the great fire of Rome, Christians had been blamed, and so many were arrested, tortured, and martyred for their faith. It was not a time to be timid about your faith, and it was also not a time to be watering down the truth, but to rather boldly proclaim the truth, no matter what the outcome would be. And this is the context into which Paul penned these trusted words. So let's think about this. When persecution of Christians was increasing significantly, instead of perhaps calling a moratorium on preaching and teaching a doctrine that was so counter-cultural to the present-day influences, Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stresses in his letters to these two men the absolute necessity of guarding and upholding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself had said, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Right? So Paul is urging Timothy to preach the word of God faithfully, which would mean further persecution. In fact, Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy in chapter three, he wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus was and is, was so important that Paul and those who believed in him were willing to suffer, even to die for this truth. This is not a light fact, this is heavy. These were difficult days. So when Paul writes his second letter to Timothy, he is looking at the end of his ministry as well as the end of his life. But his vision is beyond himself. And he writes to urge Timothy to guard, to protect, and promote the truth of the gospel. In Acts chapter 19, we had learned that all who were in Asia had heard the gospel. And a revival broke out. But years after, Paul could see that people were starting to drift from the truth. The influence of the culture was strong. The influence of Judaism was strong. People were turning away from the truth, swerving from the truth, even trying to change the truth, to tweak it in order to fit their own agendas. So here we are at the start of another semester of Bible study, and we always want to ask ourselves, Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do you come out on a Monday morning for 11 weeks to do a Bible study? Is it because you want to be a good Bible study girl? Is it because it's on your spiritual list of things to do? Maybe you come for the fellowship? And those things aren't bad but why do we do this? We have to ask ourselves always, why do we study the Bible? And in order to answer that question, I want to talk about a phrase that Paul mentions in in both of his letters to Timothy, and he also says it in Titus and Philemon as well. So five times in those four letters, he uses the phrase, knowledge of the truth knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, as Paul is urging Timothy to make prayer a priority in his life and in the life of his church there in Ephesus, we read this. This is good, talking about praying for those in positions of authority. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In Second 2 Timothy 2.25, he says, and God may grant may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So what is Paul talking about when he uses this phrase, knowledge of the truth? Well, you know, we got to take it apart. So let's first look at the word knowledge. From the original Greek language, the word carries a bit more meaning than our understanding of the word today. I did look this word up, knowledge, in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it says this. It is the fact or condition of knowing something with familiarity gained through experience or association. Or an acquaintance with or understanding of a subject. Or the range of one's information or understanding. But from the original Greek language, the word knowledge carries a bit more meaning than that. It actually, the, the same word is used in, in, in all five of those um, passages in these four books. It's the word epignosis, which signifies to know thoroughly, because epi and gnosis is two different words that were put together. Epi is intense. Gnosis is to know, so it's an intense knowing. It's to recognize a thing to be what it really is. It's a full or thorough knowledge discernment or recognition. So not just knowing something with familiarity, not just being acquainted with something, not just having an idea of if I know what that is. It's a full or thorough knowledge. So how do you know if you know something thoroughly? How do you know if you have a thorough understanding or knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ? So keep in mind that the culture in Paul's day was steeped in philosophy and arguments and debates. They prized education. They knew things. They knew things. The ancient Greek philosophers were also known as the great thinkers of the day. They knew things. Think of the Pharisees who prided themselves on their knowledge of the law. They knew things. It's not too far from the description of our cultural context today, is it? We know things. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans of his great sorrow and anguish of heart because the Jews didn't really know what they thought they knew. They didn't understand that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah whom they had been waiting and watching for. Yes, God had chosen the Israelites as his own people. They were his own possession. He gave them the law. But God had a plan to bring salvation to all people to the Gentiles who were, the outs, who were outside of the chosen race of Israel. Jesus came through Israel, and when God made his promise to Abraham back in uh, Genesis chapter 12, he was talking about Jesus. But the Jews continued to seek a righteousness that came by keeping the law. So they studied the law. They expanded the law, even, in order to ensure that they didn't break any of God's laws. They added laws of their own, almost like adding a cushion in my bank account so that I don't overdraw it. They padded it. They padded the law. And what they ended up with was a focus on keeping the law rather than on the drawing near to the God who gave them the law. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans in chapter 10, The Jews had a zeal for God. They were passionate about keeping Judaism pure. But Paul said that they were zealous about the wrong thing. They lacked knowledge of the truth. And that word for knowledge is the same Greek word, epignosis. What Paul is saying is that they lack a full or thorough knowledge of the truth. They knew what they knew, but they were still missing the boat. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness, forgetting that the prophet Isaiah had even written to them that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. They lacked knowledge of the truth. So let's talk about truth. What is truth? Now, I know this is a topic of great controversy today. In our post-truth world, people are quick to deny the reality of truth. But this doesn't erase the truth of the existence of truth. Despite what people may say, the definition of truth can be found in the dictionary. It is this, the true or actual state of a matter, conformity with fact or reality, a verified or indisputable fact, proposition, or principle. So there's such things truth. Some examples might be the true or actual state of a matter. I might say that it is a beautiful, warm, and balmy day outside, and when I go home, I'm going to work in my flower beds. But the actual true state of the matter is that it is like 26 degrees outside, and my flower bed is buried under snow. That's the truth. Conformity, or agreement, or alignment with a fact or reality. In math, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's a fact. It's a truth. No matter how you try to rearrange it, or reword it, or new math it, it's always going to be the truth that 2 plus 2 equals 4 a verifiable or indisputable fact, gravity. If I drop my Bible off the platform here, it's going to fall to the ground. Doesn't matter what I might think about it. The fact is, the truth is, it's going to fall. And if we think about natural laws, we know instinctively that there's truth in them. And there's usually an immediate consequence involved. If I drop my Bible, it's going to hit the ground unless I or something else intervenes. It's immediate. It's a law. It's a truth. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, people really don't want to hear about the existence of truth. They say that truth is relative, that you can choose your truth and I can choose my truth and we'll all be happy. But there is a truth that holds all truths, and we must align ourselves to it. To not align ourselves with it is to reject the truth, and that is sin. And because God is a God of mercy, he withholds the consequences of sin in order to give time for repentance. And so people have come to believe that since there's no immediate consequence for sin, that there's no consequence for sin at all. So they choose to ignore the truth and live however they want. They refuse to believe that there will be judgment for sin. So when did this all start? All the way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, we read of how the serpent came and confronted the woman with a simple question. Did God really say? Did God really tell you that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? But instead of responding with the truth of what God had told them, which was that they could eat of every tree in the garden but one, The woman tweaked the truth a bit. She added her own words. And the serpent came back with more lies. He told the woman that God was holding something good back from her, that she could be like God if only she would eat this forbidden fruit. And we know how the story goes. Both the woman and her husband ate the fruit, and they immediately knew that they had sinned, and they attempted to cover themselves in order to hide their shame. And Satan has been planting that question in the minds of people ever since. Did God really say? Did God really say that I need to keep his commandments? Did God really say that there is only one way to salvation? Did God really say that I need to repent of and turn from my sin? But how do we know what God indeed did say? Well, we read and we study the book that God wrote. God wrote a a book, and if you haven't yet read the preface in the front of your study guides one of these years, you'll have to take time to read it. Cherie gives a really good explanation that God himself wrote a book in order to reveal himself to us, and I encourage you, too, this year even to take time to read it again if it's been a while. Yes, God gave us a book, and in this book, written by the one and only true God, we find truth. But again, we have to ask, what is truth? In the Greek, we see that there is a distinction between objective truth and subjective truth. If something is objective, that means that it uh, originates from outside of us. Two plus two equals four. That's an objective truth. It's true outside of me. If something is subjective, it means it originates inside of us. So like my feelings about two plus two equals four, that's a subjective truth. In the Greek language, there's a distinction between the two. When Paul talks about having a knowledge of the truth, he's talking about an objective truth. There is a truth that is absolute, and it originates with God, which makes it objective outside of us. In our current cultural uh, context, people balk against absolute truth. They want truth to be subjective. Each person can decide what their own truth is. Now, the Greek word for truth is aletheia, and it refers to divine revelation. And uh, it's related, actually, to a word that literally means what can't be hidden. It conveys the thought that truth is always there, always open and available for all to see, with nothing being hidden or obscured. The Hebrew word for truth is emeth, and it implies an everlasting substance and something that can be relied upon. What is truth? You know, this question was once posed and recorded for us in the book of John. Jesus stood before Governor Pilate on trial for blasphemy. The Jewish leaders had condemned him for claiming to be equal with God. But they didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death, so they took him to stand before Pilate and brought several false charges against him. Now, Pilate could see through the deception, and he doesn't really address the charges that they brought against Jesus, but in John 18, we have this recorded for us, that Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. And Jesus ended up answering, "'My kingdom is not of this world. "'If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting "'that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. "'But my kingdom is not from the world.'" In, in other words, if my kingdom was of the world, we'd be in a battle right now, so that my servants would be stopping to fight all this, or fighting to stop all this. But Pilate asked him again, "So you are a king?" And Jesus answered, "You say that I am a king." Or in other words, you were correct in saying, "I am a king." For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, there's very two important statements in there. First, Jesus came into the world for the very purpose of bearing witness to the truth. To bear witness means to serve as evidence or proof that something exists or is the case. So Jesus serves as evidence or proof that truth exists. Let's go back a bit to John 14. Jesus had washed his disciples' feet. He had then told them that one of their own would betray him. Jesus tells the remaining disciples that he's going to go away and that they can't come with him, and they're upset by this. Peter even vows to lay down his life in defense for Jesus, but Jesus tells him, no, you're going to deny me three times before morning. But then Jesus, in the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus tells them, don't be troubled. This is all part of the plan, you see. And I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. And when the time is right, I'm going to come back and get you. But in the meantime, Jesus says to them, you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is the truth. Now, this is a rather incredible statement. I mean, how could a mere man be the truth? He couldn't be unless he was more than a man, which is what he actually claimed to be. The fact is, Jesus' claim was validated when he rose from the dead. In Romans 1.4, we read this, speaking of Jesus Christ, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus goes on in John 14 to say that if they knew him, they would also know the Father. And Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father and that that would be enough. And Jesus responded, well, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So back up to John 18, the very one who is truth is standing before Pilate. And then Pilate uttered these famous words, what is truth? Truth must originate from somewhere. The stark reality is that Pilate was looking directly at the origin of all truth. And it really wasn't that truth stood before Pilate, but rather that Pilate stood before truth. The second important statement in Jesus' response to Pilate, and let me read that verse again in John 18:37. He said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And here it is. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Remember when Jesus spoke of being the good shepherd in John chapter 10? He had said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And later in that chapter, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And Jesus tells Pilate here, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Truth is speaking directly to Pilate, and yet he isn't listening. Indeed, he cannot hear. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus had again been talking about truth. He was speaking to the Jews, and he said this, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But they had questions about this, because after all, they were children of Abraham, and they weren't enslaved, so why would Jesus talk about them needing to be set free? They argued with Jesus. They insisted that Abraham was their father, and that that was all they needed. But Jesus answered that if they were truly Abraham's children, that they would be doing what Abraham did, which was believe. Instead, they wanted to kill Jesus for telling them the truth. And Jesus said this, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the Jews had their own truth. They were children of Abraham. They had the law of Moses. They thought they knew the truth. They had knowledge, but not knowledge of the truth. Remember Paul's words in Romans 10, for they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They had knowledge, but it wasn't true knowledge. So there must be a difference between true knowledge and false knowledge. And it must be significant because Paul mentioned in his first letter to Timothy, we studied it last semester, in verse 20 of chapter 6, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul was concerned, as we studied much last semester, about holding fast to the truth. It was important because if the truth was not upheld, it caused people to swerve away from the truth, to fall away from the faith. Paul even stated that there were some who were deprived of the truth, Paul wanted to be sure that Timothy wasn't going to be shy about preaching the truth boldly. He wants him to be immersed in scripture, to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching, to be sure that the doctrine stayed sound. And he wrote these words in the midst of a culture ripe with angst against Christians. Persecution was rampant. Christ's followers were tortured and martyred for believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And yet, They held fast. They held fast to the truth, to the truth of Jesus, and truth is Jesus. So we go back to the question we asked in the beginning of every semester. Why do we do this? Why do we study the Bible? Well, we study the Bible because it is where we learn about Jesus. In John 5.39, Jesus himself told us that the scriptures testified about him. We study the Bible because we cannot understand the things of God on our own. In 1 Corinthians 2.21, we read that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We study the Bible, God's book, because this world is not going to help us uh, in gaining true knowledge. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And in 2 Thess- uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Those who are perishing will so, because they refused to love the truth, and so be saved. We study the Bible to gain a knowledge of the truth. And that is a full and thorough knowledge, not just a familiarity, but a full, thorough knowledge, more than just being acquainted with it, a full, thorough knowledge. In the words of Paul, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We study the Bible because that is where we will find Jesus, We study the Bible, because when Pilate stood before truth, that's not the only time that people will stand before truth. In Matthew 7, we read this, and Jesus is speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those people in that passage, they thought they knew Jesus. They knew things. They knew how to cast out demons in his name and do mighty works in his name and prophesy in his name. They knew all that. But they didn't know him. He didn't know them. So you see, one day, each of us is going to stand before truth. And we will be judged. And you need to know him before that day. Will Jesus be able to say that he knows you? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says to examine yourselves, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves? Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail the test? We study the Bible because the Word of God is like a mirror where we can see our true selves in the reflection of the law. And what we'll see is just how much we need Him. We go there to be in His presence. A quote by Augustine that Cherie posted on social media this past week says this, treat the scriptures of God as the face of God. Melt in its presence. So many people today claim to love God but reject his word. But it is through the word of God, the scriptures, that we see the face of Jesus, who is God in the flesh Let us therefore receive the scriptures with humility, go to them, and melt into the presence of our good and glorious God. This is why we study the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we worship you as truth. Your word tells us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a deeper way than ever before this semester. May we humble ourselves before your words and look to you to transform us into the image of your Son. We ask all this in your name. Amen.